Psalm 126, as we continue our look for one more Sunday, these Psalms of Ascent, and uh, just remind you that we're not obviously not covering all of them. Uh, they begin in Psalm 120 and go through Psalm 134. There's 15 of them, and we've just looked at four of them this this month of January and our, our Sunday morning services to, as we begin this year, to, to hopefully point our eyes to, to Christ, to point our eyes to the Lord, our Keeper, but also preparing our hearts for revival that's coming up uh, next Sunday. And so I hope and pray that the Word of the Lord has, has caused our hearts to ascend, just like these, these Jews, as they sang these songs, they were... They were ascending up into Jerusalem for their different feasts and festivals. And so hopefully our heart is, is ascending as we prepare for revival next Sunday. And uh, God has caused us to, to, to sit in heavenly places. He's convicted us and He's encouraged us and, and He's exhorted us and He's chastised us. And so this morning, Psalm 126, we're going we're gonna to be invited by the psalmist to cry out to our God to restore our joy. If you remember, I told you last week, as we were in Psalm 124, that every third psalm, there is some idea of lamenting. There, there's there's a, an idea of, of, of grief or sorrow or some expression of that. Every third psalm, and, and it begins with the first psalm of ascent, 120, and we saw it in 123, and here we are in 126, and we're going to see it again. And so the idea here is that we're going to see something that God has done, a prayer that, that God would do it again, and then a promise that He will do it. Because we've seen in these psalms of ascent the dangers of our eyes Drifting off of the Lord and drifting down from our keeper and, and not having that Christ-centered life. And we talked about those dangers of things like letting our focus be on our trials and our struggles and our difficulties. And even those dangers in terms of sin and the temptation and the things that can, can pull us away from a, a Christ-centered life. And maybe this morning you're sitting here saying... But preacher, my joy is full. It couldn't be any, any better than what it is. I'm, I am absolutely full of the joy of the Lord. And if that's the case, then just listen to what I say and store it away for the future. But probably, very, very, very likely, that's not the case. And what we're going to see as we work through this psalm is that there are times that we need our joy restored. And so what we're going to understand from this psalm, and here's your sermon in a sentence, is that the Lord who delivered you and who gave you the joy of salvation will restore the joy of His redeemed. He will restore the joy of of his redeemed. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we read Psalm 126. And let me just kind of give you the, the structure of this psalm. I've already mentioned it, but let me show you how it lays out. 
verses 1, so as we read it, maybe you can, you can see it. Verses 1 through 3, the psalmist is going to write about something that God has done. And then in verse 4, there's going to be a prayer for God to do it again. And then verses 5 and 6 is that promise that God will do it. So, Psalm 126, verse 1. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And, O oh, Father, we, we beg you with the psalmist this morning to restore our joy. Father, whatever it may be that has, has tarnished it in this world, whether it be a focus that has slipped off of our Christ and, and on to the things of this world or on to our difficulties, our sufferings, or rather maybe it's unconfessed sin, that we need to repent and be washed and cleansed and forgiven. Father, whatever the case may be for your children this morning, I beg you to, to bring us to a place to cry out to you this morning to restore our joy. Father, I pray for somebody here that has never known this joy because they've never known Christ. They've not trusted you and the finished work of Christ and the grace and the mercy that you have given them. Father, I pray that, that they would repent and believe this morning. And that they would see that they have no hope of joy. They have no hope at all outside of Christ. And may your gospel work in their heart this morning and the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Oh, Father, we beg you to save them today. Convict them. Draw them. Remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Father, we'll praise you and we'll thank you for your goodness and your mercy and what you do in our hearts and our lives this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I want to I make something very, very clear before I move any further with the sermon this morning. If you don't hear anything else I say, and, and I hope you hang on with me mentally this morning and hear more than what I'm about to say. But if you don't hear anything else I say, 
Hear this. May this be crystal clear in your ears and in your heart this morning. The only place that you will find joy is in Jesus Christ. He is the only source of joy. And He is the only way for your joy to be full. It is in Christ. And so as we talk about this thing of joy, and we talk about our joy needing to be restored, I don't want you to be confused or misunderstand anything I say. Because all of this is under the umbrella of understanding that our joy exists only in Christ. He is the only source. Yet, even those of us who were saved, even those of us who know Christ and are in Christ and He's in us, we face times when we need our joy restored. In fact, there seems to be quite an epidemic of what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones referred to as spiritual depression. It seems as though there are so many of those who claim to be God's children, who claim to be Christians, live their lives as if they're in utter misery. And if they are truly saved, if they are truly in Christ, and Christ is in them, then something has happened to rob them of their joy. And I think if we be honest, this morning, there's a room full of us. But don't think you're alone. In fact, there are many examples, but just a couple in the Old Testament of men of God whose joy had become tarnished, whose whose joy needed to be restored. One of those was the great prophet Elijah. In 1 Kings 19... He was just flat out depressed because of the circumstances. His eyes had gotten off of his keeper and had gotten onto the things that was going on around him. And he needed his joy restored. The other obvious one is David because David said it himself. But David's problem was sin. Unrepented of sin. His sin with Bathsheba and his consequent murder of her husband Uriah. And it caused him to need his joy restored. Well, in this text, we're going to see that the psalmist pictures this idea of of a restoration of joy through some things that happened in the nation of Israel. And so I want you to see three great truths this morning about our joy being restored. The first truth is this, that the redeemed know the joy of the Lord. And and, and I don't mean just some mental assent, like knowledge with just our mind. It has to be in our mind, yes, But it's more than just a mental understanding of what joy is and where joy comes from. We know the joy of the Lord experientially. We've experienced it. And in the psalm, the writer talks about something that God has done in the past in the first three verses. 
Now, I'm convinced that he's referring to their coming out of Babylonian captivity. Now, there would be some who may argue that point, but I'm the one preaching. And so that's what we're going to look at it as. But either way, there's something tremendous that God has done in the nation of Israel. That the psalmist is looking back to and being reminded of. And so look at it with me in verses 1 through 3. He begins by saying, They that trust... Oh, excuse me. I'm in Psalm 125. How about 126? When the Lord turned again they got the captivity of Zion. Now let's stop right there and understand very clearly that it is the Lord who did this. Okay? Who is it? That turned the captivity of Zion. That word turned means to restore. To bring back. Bring them back to where they had been. Who is it that did it? Well, it was the Lord. It was the working of God. It was God's doing. When the Lord again turned again the captivity of Zion. It may have seemed like that Cyrus was was pulling a political move. To send the remnant back. By the way, this is recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. It may have seemed like he was working politically in order to send the remnant back to Jerusalem. But folks, I want to tell you something. It was God's divine hand working among his people. It was the Lord's doing. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion. And then he goes on in the next few verses to... To show how this was manifest. What happened? How did it affect them? And what he describes is is joy. He says, we were like them that dream. Now, the, the obvious thought there as you look at it would be total bliss, right? I mean... How could this be happening? Almost, a, almost an unbelief that this thing's going on. Uh, what came to my mind was the saying, if I'm dreaming, don't wake me up. I mean, that was, that was the, the joy, the bliss that they were experiencing. But there's an underlying with the Hebrew word for dream that yes, it has to do with that total bliss, but it's because of a return to health. It's as if someone had A terminal disease that they were given no hope. The doctors have all said it's not going to happen. Never going to get past what's going on in your body. It's terminal. But then something happens. And they go from being utterly hopeless To their health being restored. That's the picture here. That's the picture that the psalmist is writing. About what God has done. And what he's remembering. About what God has done. In the history of the nation of Israel. Well listen. There's a clear application there for us who are saved. Because if you're saved this morning. We understand what it means. To have a terminal condition. And then to be restored from that. Because if I remember right. Paul says in Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We didn't just have a sickness. We were dead. And God gave us joy. Through his son Jesus Christ. Well so there's, there's this idea of, of, of just utter bliss. But then notice. 
how that then manifests itself in verse 2 even further. Then was our mouth filled with laughter. I almost sense that to begin with, they, they couldn't even form words. They were just so overwhelmed and so overcome with this joy, with this utter bliss for what God had done for them that all they could do was laugh. In fact, not just laugh, not just a little chuckle, but their mouth was filled with laughter. You remember a couple of psalms ago, they were filled with contempt with those who were mocking them and and deriding them. And now, they're filled with laughter. Not just a chuckle, but a big old belly laugh. Y'all know the difference, right? You know the difference? And so they're just in awe. They're just in awe of what God has done for them. Listen to me this morning. Have you been there? Some of you need to get there again. I'll look at your faces. And if you've never just been awed by what God has done for you through His Son, Jesus Christ, I doubt that you're saved. I'm serious. Because when we consider the fact that we're rotten, wretched sinners, and God gave His perfectly righteous Son to die for us, that should awe us. That should leave us without words. And fill us with laughter, with joy, expressing itself. And then he says in verse 2, not only was their mouth filled with laughter, he says, then when they could finally form some words, their tongue was, was filled with singing. Now I need to point something out to you that's very interesting here. In the original language, in the Hebrew, that word for singing... And in verse 5, the word for joy. And in verse 5, the word rejoicing. They are all the exact same Hebrew word. And the idea is singing slash shouting for joy. They were so overwhelmed and so overtaken by what God had done for them that all they could do was sing and shout for joy. Let me encourage you. Sing loud. Sing loud. You say, but I don't want the person next to me to hear me. And they may not want to hear you. But look at me. I'm, I'm as serious as I can be. If your worship is depending on the person sitting next to you, your worship is broken. Sing loud. Sing out. Sing because of what your God has done for you. Sing with all that you are. Sing to the one who has delivered you and who keeps you. Sing. The rafters shouldn't be able to hold this roof. If we're singing out of true worship for the one who gave his son for us. Sing loud. 
And then notice something else and how this is manifest in verse 2 and 3, and that is there's this testimony, testimony without, testimony within. We see it without at the end of verse 2 when he says, And then said they among the heathen, that is the Gentiles, nations other than Israel, the Lord hath done great things for them. Now I want to tell you something. When our joy is this full, even the heathen know it. Even the lost know there's something going on. And wasn't that the case when you got saved? Wasn't that the case when your joy was full because your sins were forgiven and everybody knew the Lord's done something for that boy? Or girl. And so there's this testimony without, but then there's the testimony within in verse 3. Because notice it says, at the end of verse 2, the Lord hath done great things for them. That's the the heathen saying it. Now verse 3, the Lord hath done great things for us. Now the psalmist is saying it. Now Israel is saying it. Yeah, you know what? They're right. The Lord has done great things for us. And while the heathen may say it and see these things, and it may even make them angry and make them mad... Not us. What does the psalmist say? Whereof we are glad. That means literally that that we're happy in the things of God. That means that we take pleasure in these great things that God has done for us. Ask yourself a question this morning. Where do you find your pleasure? Where where do you seek? Where do you go for pleasure? For things that would make you glad? I'm afraid we often seek in the wrong places. But the psalmist says that when our joy is full, we find pleasure in the great things that God has done for us. We find pleasure in looking back and knowing that our God has delivered us. And knowing that He has saved us. You understand that's, that's what happened when we talk about repentance unto salvation. Evangelical repentance. That is, you turn from your sin. But it's not just a, a turning from your sin. That's what, what repentance means, right? A, a change, a turn. And so you're turning from your sin, but you're turning to something. And what you're turning to is mercy and grace. That, guess what it does? Forgives those sins. And it fills you with joy. When God's grace is poured out in your heart as you repent and you believe the gospel... Fills you with this joy. So I would ask you this morning. Do you know it? Do you know this joy? Listen it may have been been tarnished by things going on in this world. And we'll talk about that in a second. But do you know this joy? Have you experienced it? You see the Lord who delivered you. 
and gave you the joy of salvation, He will restore the joy of His redeemed. Notice, secondly with me, not only that the redeemed know the joy of the Lord, but the redeemed need their joy restored by the Lord. Now, we've said there are many things that can can rob us of our joy. When we let our eyes get on our circumstances, when we let our eyes get on our tribulations, our sufferings, when we give in to temptation and we sin, our joy can be robbed. And because of those things we talked about last week of our flesh that is within us and the world that is around us and and the devil who's firing those fiery darts at us, our joy is constantly taking a hit. Isn't it? This means, yeah. It's constantly taking a hit. And so guess what? We need our joy restored. It's pictured in the next couple of verses. We see this prayer that the psalmist prays at the beginning of verse 4. He says, turn again our captivity, O Lord. In other words, do exactly now what you did in verse 1. He was looking back at what God had done, and now he's asking God, you did it before, and I'm going to ask you to do it again. Now, again, let me make something crystal clear and qualify what I'm saying here. I am not speaking of losing your salvation. I am speaking of losing your joy. We do not lose our salvation. Why? Because the Lord keeps His redeemed now and forever. We saw that just a couple of psalms ago. But we do lose our joy. And He prays for God to do it. Because once again, Israel is in a place of need. And He pictures that in a couple of ways. He begins by picturing it With drought. He says. The rest of verse 4. As the streams. In the south. That is as the streams. In Negev. The the southern portion of Israel. Where things get really dry. And when drought comes. the, The stream beds. Literally dry up. They dry up totally. In fact. I believe, I'm convinced that that's why the psalmist is writing this. is because they're experiencing a drought. But when God would send a rain, those stream beds would fill back up. And the water would flow again. And the psalmist is picturing our soul like that stream bed that can get dry. And there can be a drought. You ever experienced that spiritually? Are you experiencing that spiritually? That things just seem dry. There's another picture the psalmist gives, and that is not only of drought, but of dread. The first part of verses 5 and 6 says, They that sow in tears... 
And then verse 6 says, He that goeth forth and and weepeth, bearing precious seed. By the way, here's the lament portion of the psalm. There could be this dread. The the, the picture here is is obviously of of a farmer sowing seed. And, And there's this dread. As he's sowing it, these tears. As he's sowing it, why... Why in the world would the sower weep as he sows his seed? Well, it could be because of the condition of the soil. I mean, Israel's dry. And he's weeping over that soil that he knows is hard and dry and cracked. It certainly fit with the context of what he just said in verse 4. It could be because of the conditions of, of drought. It could be that there had been very, very little rain. You understand, they don't get a lot of rain in southern Israel where he's speaking of. And so the, the, the sower is going out with his seed and he's weeping, he's dreading because conditions are not often favorable to be sowing seed in southern Israel. Not only that, but there's a scarcity of the seed. They're precious. Speaks to it probably not being that many. He probably doesn't have a lot. And so he's going out and he's weeping as he's sowing this seed. Almost with dread. You pull from the parable that Jesus gave. You've got the idea of enemies that would come and steal it away. The birds... And the things that may take the seed as soon as it hits the ground. But here's here's what I know. That even with all of these things, and I would say in fact all of these things combined. That as the sower goes out sowing his seed, the reason he's weeping. And by the way, you see the progression in verses 5 and 6? The first word of verse 5 is they, a general statement, they that sow in tears. But then he makes it very personal in verse 6. He that goeth forth and weepeth. And so this man, picture him in your mind. He's walking out with what little seed he has left. And he's sowing it on a very hard ground, unsure if there's going to be rain. You know why he's weeping? Because his family's depending what he's doing. His family is depending on that seed. Finding good soil. And getting the water it needs. And growing and producing fruit. Because guess what? If it doesn't produce, they don't eat. So he goes forth weeping. Sowing the precious seed. Because he's unsure. He's just unsure. What's going to happen. Why do we. Live this life in weeping and. Sowing in tears in this world. Well. We could obviously consider suffering and trials and. and Past failures. But I want you to hear me. As we move from point two to point three, and that is God cares. 
You may be walking through this world sowing your seed for the kingdom of God with tears streaming down your face. But my God and your God hears your cries. In Exodus chapter 3, the children of Israel are in bondage and God has brought Moses up as a young man planning for him to be the one to lead them out of that bondage. And in chapter 3, he is there before the burning bush. His shoes are off of his feet. And he's worshiping the holy God there. And here's what the Lord says. Verses 6 and 7. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Watch this. Verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. If you're a child of God this morning, if you're redeemed, you can rest assured that your Lord hears your cries and He cares for you. And what good news it is this morning to know that the Lord who delivered you and gave you the joy of salvation, He will restore that joy for His redeemed. Do you know it? Do you know that joy? Do you need that joy? Do you need it restored? Notice thirdly, that the redeemed will have their joy restored. Now you say... Preacher, how can you make such a definite statement? Well, there's a couple of reasons. And we find them in this promise of verses 5 and 6. Let's go ahead and read all of those verses. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall... What's the next word? You know what doubtless means? It means it's happening. It means doubtless. It will happen shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. This hope that we see in this promise is grounded in God's character. If you back up and notice in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, the word Lord, and every time the word Lord is used, it's the covenant name of our God. Listen to me this morning. If you're saved, if you're redeemed, that means that your hands are written on the palm of His hand. And they're written in the Lamb's book of life. And He is your covenant God. And He's made a covenant with you through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And this hope and this joy that we have is not based in anything else but who God is. If you think it's based on your circumstances, boy, aren't you going to be disappointed. If you think it's based even on your family, boy, aren't you going to be disappointed. If you think it's based on your preacher, you're already disappointed. But this hope is founded in who God is. And the fact that He is a covenant-keeping God. But this hope is also guaranteed in eternity. You see, when you think about what happened in verses 1 through 3 that, the, that, the, that the, the psalmist is referring to, he's saying that Israel, by sowing tears of repentance, 
while they were in captivity, they reaped the joy of coming home. And isn't that true for believers? When we sow in tears repentance, remember repenting of our sin and turning to God's grace and God's mercy, when we sow the seed of repentance, we have the hope of going home. We have a hope of eternity. We have a hope that one day we will get this great reversal. That our tears will be turned to joy. And that the drought will result in sheaves. In other words, through Christ, eternally, we go from nothing to everything. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon His face the one who saved me by His grace when He takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. John described that day in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth was passed away. There was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them, and shall be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and unfaithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that a thirst, the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh, shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. You say, but preacher, what about now? Because, I mean, that's our hope, right? That we have heaven waiting for us. All of our tears wiped away, and no more death, no more sorrow. But what about now? Can we, can we have this joy restored now? I declare to you, yes. Now, as long as we're in this world filled with sufferings and with sin, it will never be what it's going to be there. Understand that. But you can have your joy fulfilled. And you know how that happens? I'm going to end with a how and a why. You know how that happens? It happens through Christ. Because the same Lord that saved you, that delivered you, the same Lord that gave you this joy of salvation, He is the one that will restore it. 
Now, He will restore. This is how I can speak so confidently. He will restore the joy of His redeemed. All of those who are redeemed will have their joy fully realized in heaven. We will. But you can have your joy restored today. And how does it happen? Maybe not like you would think. Because we live in a such a entertainment-driven world that thinks all things have to be exciting and sensational. There has to be a, a lot of flair and, I mean, something's got to happen to flip me over on my head, right? No. You don't know how your joy can be restored today? I'm going to use a term I used to couple of weeks ago through the ordinary means of grace ordinary means of grace because if you're looking for sensational listen to me it'll fizzle out just as quick as it showed up but the ordinary means of grace you know what that is singing reading praying preaching the word of God that's what the scriptures have prescribed for us there's something else that's considered ordinary means of grace you know what it is it's the two ordinances of the church the lord's supper and baptism you want your joy restored do what the front of this table says when we observe communion you really do it in remembrance of christ if you're saved that'll restore your joy your baptism do you understand why you were baptized do you understand the purpose of it? It wasn't just so the church would have to pay a higher water bill. It wasn't just so that, that you could go under some water, but rather the scripture says that you are buried with him in baptism and you're raised to walk in newness of life. And the idea is that you identified with Jesus Christ when you got baptized. You made a public profession of what he has done in your heart. And so listen, if you need your joy restored, all you have to do is think back to who you identified with when you got baptized. Now that didn't save you. There's nothing regenerating about it. We know that. But it's an outward sign of what God has done in you. I mentioned two Old Testament examples, Elijah and David. Elijah needed his joy restored because of the situation going on around him. And you know how God ended up comforting him? Comforting him? It wasn't through the wind and it wasn't through the fire. You remember if you read 1 Kings 19, you know what I'm talking about. But rather, through a still small voice. How did David have his joy restored? By the man of God looking at him and telling him, you're the one. This sin is your sin, David. You need to repent. God sent his man to tell David, to share with David his truth and his word. And guess what? That's exactly how it happens today. Don't look for anything like fireworks. Just look to the word of God. Sing, pray, listen to the preaching, read it, study it. Observe the ordinances like we're commanded to. 
See if God won't restore your joy. That's the how, but why? Well, the why is pretty obvious because you need it. It's for your good. It's for your good, but even greater than that, it's for His glory. It's so that others see us and testify not of us. You notice the psalmist didn't say that the heathen said, Man, what great people Israel is. Is that what he said? No, they looked at him and said, What great things their God has done. And when our joy is full of good hope, that's what people see and say about us. Do you know that joy? Have you experienced it? Do you know it? If not, then repent of your sin. Turn to the mercy and grace of Christ and trust in Him and be saved this morning. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we prepare for an invitation. Search your heart. Know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are in Christ, that you know this joy. And if you need your joy restored, just turn to Jesus. Look to Him, the author and the finisher of your faith, to restore what you once had. And be reconciled and brought back into fellowship with the God who didn't move. He didn't move. We're the ones that turn. We're the ones that allow our eyes to shift. And so if you want to experience revival this week, seek God through these ordinary means that He's prescribed to His church.